In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. And everything was great for about a chapter and a half, right? And then sin entered the world, and in the world, everything fell into darkness. But that, that Genesis 1, speaking of the light, becomes this symbol, this metaphor, this image for all that God is doing into the darkness of the new world. It's a metaphor, a symbol, an image of all of God's recreation work, for all of his redemption work, for what he called his people to be a part of. You know, this line, Jesus says in Matthew 5, so let your light so shine. The people of God are to be shining the light of God. This shining of the light is an image of the presence of God with his people, Like when God is with his people, there's a shining there. Tony's going to bless our service at the end here. And and a lot of times he uses the priestly blessing of number six. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you. So the shining is is an image of God being with his people, doing what he does through them. So this, this shining is God with us our experience of God with us, and our experience of us being with God. Him being with us and us being with him in what he's doing. So let's look at Isaiah 58, 59, and 60 here and notice the the references to light. There's a problem with the light of God's people in these chapters. Let's uh, pick up in verse 8 of Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Then it shall. And your healing shall spring up speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Look now at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. Now look with me to chapter 59, verse 9. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but the... The people of God hearing this prophecy now make a confession and they say justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. So in these two chapters, it's clear that the light, the people's light is out. They feel cut off from God. They feel very unsure and confused and frustrated about their situation. But now let's go to Isaiah 60. Verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So we read, Then your light shall break out. Now their light breaks out. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Verse 3, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So chapters 58 and 59 of Isaiah are all about what is wrong with Israel's light and what needs to happen so that they shine again. Now, what's the problem with Israel? What's the problem usually with Israel, right? We just talked about this a couple weeks ago. The problem is usually idolatry. The problem is usually idolatry, but it's not idolatry here. Look with me again at chapter 58, verse 2. 
What's the problem? What's the problem with their light? The problem is this. It says that they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're fervent in religion. Right? They're, they're being fervent in religion. They're fasting. You see that in verse 3? We fasted and you see it not. You know, despite what we kind of think about the Old Testament and Israel, they didn't have to fast very much. Most of what God told them, like, you need to do is like feasting, getting together and party, partying. There was one day a year where they were supposed to have a holy fast, the Day of Atonement. All the other commandments have to do with like getting together, family camping, playing games, and having a good time before the Lord. So there's this one fast day. Well, they're like, they're like trying to earn bonus points here, right? They're being fervent in religion. And the big question is, how are we being fervent in religion, but we're not getting favor from the Lord? Do you ever have that question? It's like the fundamental American Christian question. I'm doing religious stuff, God. I should be getting the other things, the accoutrements that I desire. I'm being religious, but I'm not getting this favor. Now, Israel comes by this situation relatively honestly. Uh, we've talked before about kind of the three chapters of the book of Isaiah, verses uh, chapters 1 to 39 are all before Judah goes into exile in Babylon. And in chapters 1 to 39, Isaiah is warning them, you better knock it off while that you're doing bad. And then in 40 to 55, they're in Babylon. Isaiah is writing to people he knows are going to be in exile in Babylon. And he's writing to them saying, hey, just because you're in Babylon doesn't mean that God's promises are null and void. He's still going to give you grace. He's still going to send his promised one and bring you back. Now, in uh, what does it say? 56 to 64, now in the last kind of chapter of Isaiah, he's talking to people who have returned from exile. So the group of people that he's talking to here are people who are back in the promised land after about two or three generations of living in Babylon. And they are coming back now. That exile is theoretically over. And so they want to be very careful to be doing the religious stuff right. Right? These are the great-grandkids of the people that went to exile. So these people are like, let's not screw this up again. We want to make sure we do the religious stuff right but they're forgetting why they went to exile in the first place. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 13, the very first sermon we looked at in the book of Isaiah, God says, I hate iniquity with solemn assembly. I hate your religious forms when you go out and you're unjust the rest of your week. I hate your religious practices and you go out and do injustice and iniquity so it's the same thing what they're struggling with is not irreligion but listen to this formal religion without transformation formal religion without transformation i mean if you know anything about the bible you know god is pro-religion right he's got priests he's got buildings he's got days and structures and do this then do that then say this then say that Religion is good. God gave us religion to serve the shining of our light, to serve His work in our lives and our work in His world. But 
The real question is, are we changed? Are we being changed? Religion is supposed to serve transformation. But that's not always what it tends to do. And so let's look again here at chapter 58, picking up again in verse 3. And this is just such an extraordinary chapter, a section. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8 again. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Look at chapter 59, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. Uh, Behold, 59.1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutter wickednesses. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity. So the problem... The problem of, of Judah, of Israel at this moment, is that they, they've got religion, but no righteousness. Right? They've got religious forms, but they've got no transformation. Right? They've, been, they've been given this, this great land, they've been given this great opportunity, this great big farm of productive soil and, and every conceivable advantage, and they put up a barn to serve it and to make it useful, but all they do is they put up the sticks. No roof, no sides. No electricity, nothing. It's just standing there. That's what, that's what Isaiah is looking at. You've got the form, but there's nothing here. It's not finished, and it's not useful. It's not what God wants for you. Listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you something now, and I wanna be, I'm going to say it a couple times just to be clear. God's grace always aims at transformation. I want to make sure you hear me. Not just God aims at transformation, and sometimes He uses grace, and sometimes He uses punishment. Right? God, not God aims at transformation, and sometimes He uses the stick, and sometimes He uses the carrot. It's in God's grace. We all like grace. Grace, grace, grace. We all like to sing grace. We love grace. We love stories of grace. What is His grace doing in our lives? Listen to Paul in Titus chapter 2. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, yeah, and training us to renounce ungodliness, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Because, praise God for that, right? Don't you want to live a little more self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present evil age? Don't you want to live lives of godliness and Christ-likeness? Absolutely. How's that going to come about? Well, it's the grace of God as well. God's grace is always aiming for transformation. What does transformation in our lives look like? Transformation is always... Love thy neighbor. 
I know you're hoping I would say something else. Transformation is always love your neighbor. You know what Jesus said? When asked what are the great, what's the great commandment, he gives two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? So have that religion, have that God relationship, and love your neighbor the way you love yourself. That relationship is going to be expressed in this relationship. That, that love is going to be expressed in this love. Paul goes on in Galatians. He makes this point emphatic to the Galatians who were very confused on this point, similar to what Isaiah is dealing with in Israel. They were thinking that you could have religious forms without transformation. And so Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, In Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith, your relationship with God, working itself out in love, being expressed in love. A few verses later, he says, let me just put this in a nutshell for you. The whole law, everything that God wants for you, summed up in one word, love, the Lord your, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. God's grace aims at transformation. That transformation is always in the direction of loving our neighbors. And as Isaiah 58 makes very clear, painfully clear, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, that transformation and that love is most evident in how we treat the people that we think we can afford to treat poorly. Right? So there's people you treat nicely. Most people treat the pastor pretty nicely. Right? They think, if I don't treat the pastor nicely, I'm going to be in a sermon sometime soon. But there's people that you think you, you need to treat nicely, right? Your boss comes in the room, hey, how's it going? It's great, everything's great. Right? That, that, that client, oh, you treat them really well. How do you treat the wait staff? How do you treat the janitorial staff? How do you treat your employees? How do you treat your spouse and your kids? How do you treat the people that you think you can afford to treat poorly? That's where the love of your neighbor really comes out. That's where this transformation is really made evident. And that's what the people of Israel are struggling with in Isaiah 58 and 59. See, we all have a tendency to accept religious substitutes for real transformation. Whether it's church activity, whether it's uh, being theologically precise, whether it's social activism or even missions work, we tend to accept religious busyness for real transformation. Which is, but it can be tricky, right? Should we care about theological precision? Should we care about mission? Should we care about being involved in church? Absolutely. So the people of Israel at this, in chapter 58, verse 3, they say, why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? Like they're confused about this. They're saying, I'm really involved in church. I'm really praying for these missionaries. I'm really doing this stuff. I'm really, really going through the church constitution with a fine-tooth comb. I'm like, I'm doing this stuff, God, Right? It's tricky. These things can be genuine. They can be the overflow of love for God and love for our neighbors. They can be, and they should be. But they can also be a performance, substituting busyness for love and for God. And, and let me just be like really direct and upfront. Like This has basically been my story of my development as life as a pastor. right? Like I love getting involved in the church. And so I'm constantly having this temptation to accept being involved in religious activity in the place of opening my life to real transformation. And the more that you are involved in church, the more you're going to experience this back and forth tug. 
that God is going to draw you to himself and then you're going to go off and do something else. And what's, what's really interesting about this, and, and I, 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 listen, you guys are great, right? I, don't want you to, I want you to know that I think you're great. You know, uh, Brian calls our church the church that uh, you can only... You only know it can only be found by those who know where it is, right? This is a, a, a kind of a challenging church to to find, to be at, to to really enter and to appreciate, and, and and I get that, and I know you guys, and you're you're great, and and then we turn to Isaiah fifty eight and fifty nine. It's like this is only applicable to people who are trying to do it right. This is only applicable to people who are trying to be good, right? Trying to show up at church and do it right. Those are the only ones to whom this applies, right? You and I want to make a difference in the world, but then we get tired of being made different. We want to make a difference in the world, but we get tired of God making us different to be able to do that. We say, I'm just going to settle for some of these substitutes. This is a problem in Isaiah. Listen to what John says in 1 John uh, Six, seven hundred years later, he says, By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. All right, so now if, if this is stinging at all, that means you're kind of a... You're an, a church, religious person, which is, I like you. I like that about you. It's a good thing, okay? But this is going to be a temptation for us. And here's the temptation. On top of the temptation is to think that the solution is try harder and do better. Good job being involved in church. Now add to it, transform your life. Okay, okay. Make a difference in the world now. Be a totally different person. Good. Also, both of those things. That's not the solution. And that solution, that, our tendency to think that that's what this is talking about, gets undermined at the end of our passage. Look at chapter 59, verse 9. Get over to Isaiah 59, verse 9, where we are exposed to what is the deeper problem. Notice the shift in language. He says now, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us us right so now who's speaking the people who had just heard the prophetic indictment of 58 up to this point we hope for light behold darkness for brightness but we walk in gloom look now at verse 12 for our transgressions are multiplied before you god and our sins testify against us our transgressions are with us we know our iniquities transgressing denying the lord turning back from following our god speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. That's how deep this is for them. From the heart, these problems are springing. We keep doing this, they're saying. We did it in Isaiah 1, 58. We're doing it in Isaiah 58, 59. 700 years later, 1 John, we're doing it there and we're doing it and still tempted to do it today we have been saved from sin's consequences which thanks be to god 
We have been saved from sin's consequences, but we want and the world needs us to be saved from sin's gravity as well. Right? Don't you want to be saved from the gravity, the pull of selfishness and sinfulness away from being the shining of the light of God in this world and towards just being seeking your own pleasure at every turn? We don't want to live that way. So we need God not just to do something in our lives, to do a work of salvation in our lives, but to do a work of, of salvation and redemption in our hearts. So what is the solution going to be now? We're in Isaiah 59. Look at verse 14. The prophet speaks again now and he summarizes. He says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Truth is stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man, wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. The solution to the situation is going to be, what does it say? A man upheld by God's righteousness who is described here as the arm of the Lord. Did you see that in verse 16? He saw there was no man, no one to intercede, and so his own arm brought him salvation. This is an interesting, this is an interesting thing. Okay, the arm of the Lord. You might think, that, that's kind of a weird, it's a Bible. Bible's weird, Bible expression, weird Bible thing. But Isaiah does something interesting with this little phrase. Look with me, um, we're just going to walk through the usage of this in Isaiah. So this is a little bit of geekery for uh, you Bible geeks out here. Isaiah 40, 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Is that a weird expression? That's a weird expression even for the Bible. Is He ruling or is His arm ruling? There's, like, there's two things, Him ruling, Him and His arm. 51, 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. You wouldn't just say, O Lord, you're saying like the arm of the Lord. Uh, 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The Lord's arm is going to bring the salvation. But it all becomes very clear in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant. The arm of the Lord is a man. The arm of the Lord is the one who would come and do righteousness. The arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ. So the solution to the problem that, that Israel was facing about having God who has worked in their lives, but they need God to work in their heart. The solution is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who did what is right. I know this is a simple and an obvious thing, but I want you to hear this. Jesus Christ did what is right, right? So if you're like religious and theological, you'll, you'll recognize the phrase Christ's righteousness. I want to be very clear that Christ's righteousness is not meant to be an abstract theological idea. It just means he did what is right. He did what is right. Christ's righteousness is just what he did. He went to war with the unjust aspects of his world. He welcomed the outsiders and the excluded. He comforted, uh, he comforted them. He confronted injustice and exploitation. He offended the majority culture powerful. And Jesus did all of those justice things 
righteousness things is what he did. He got up in the morning, Isaiah says, he put righteousness on, he put salvation on, he wrapped vengeance and zeal around himself, and he got after it. And in doing so, he embodied the Lord's heart for the afflicted and the poor and the hungry. Jesus did what is right. He didn't just do religion. And you and I today have the Spirit of Jesus in our lives transforming us. Right? Paul says that we all, beholding the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, are being transformed into His image through the work of the Spirit who is the Lord in our lives. And yet, even though we have the transforming spirit in our lives, I think that this passage is still applicable to us because we also have the same sin that Israel had at work in our lives as well. We still have the same tendency, the struggle with avoiding transformation. Religion is supposed to serve transformation, but a lot of times we let it replace actually loving our neighbors. All right, so here's the solution. The solution for us, I couldn't think of a, of a less religious-y, churchy way to say this, okay? So I'm going to try to unpack it here for you. The, the righteousness of Christ upon us and within us. Are you in Isaiah 59 still? Look with me here. We see this. So in verse 16, it talks about this, this man who the, the arm of the Lord... His righteousness, God's righteousness upheld him. In verse 17, it says that he put on righteousness as a breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now look at verse 20. It's talking about this guy still. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, now listen, as for me, this is my covenant with them says the Lord, my spirit that's upon you, Redeemer, and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth and out of the mouth of them, your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. He's talking about the spirit of righteousness and he's talking about the righteous word. The spirit is going to be on him and the word is going to be in him. And this is going to be an identifying feature of, of Jesus' people. The righteousness on him, the righteousness in him, is going to be an identifying feature of Jesus' people, of those who have been redeemed by him. Jesus' life, his righteousness to defend us, upon us, and Jesus' truth within us to transform us. These are going to be, both of these things, are identifying features of God's people. So Jesus Christ is the righteous one. In verse 16, what, is it, what does the, Isaiah say? He saw that there was no man, there was no one else. Only Jesus is the righteous one. He did what was right, and he did it in our place. Have you received that? It's a very important thing. Jesus Christ is my armor. His righteousness is my armor. It's my defense. It's my Bible word, justification. He, he was righteous 
and it is applied to me. So let me tell you some good news. You don't have to be righteous in order to come before God with your woes, your problems, your sorrows, your joys. You don't have to do righteousness. There's no bare minimum for entry into the presence of God or into the eternal gates. Christ's righteousness, if you have put your faith in Him, all of the right things He did clothes you. It's your armor. And it defends you. And so, we shine. Part of our shining is by saying, I'm not the righteous one. He is. We shine by pointing to what He did. By pointing to God being with us. You think about that? We talk about God being with us as an Old Testament thing. God with us in Christ's righteousness. What He's done is our armor. And so He is with us in this. Now some of you Bible scholars may have noticed something in Isaiah 59 when it says that uh, Jesus, Jesus is, uh, puts on the breastplate of righteousness. Did, that start to, did anything start to tingle in the back of your mind? The helmet of salvation? Is this, right, you guys got a little, uh, a little plastic version of this somewhere in some closet somewhere at home? right? Turn in your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul quotes Isaiah 59 and develops it, and he applies it to the Christian. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, on page 1,672 in my Bible. So the righteousness of Christ is our armor. That's the first thing. We've got to get out from underneath the, uh, the sense of not being righteous enough to interact with God. God is with us. And so in Ephesians 6, let's look at verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, again, quoting Isaiah 59, and he develops it as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, clothe yourself, identify yourself with Jesus, and you will be made safe. But there's another aspect here that I want to point out. Uh, one of the commentators I read mentioned this, that in, in Isaiah 59, when it, when it talks about this coming one, putting this stuff on, it says that character, uh, clothing is a metaphor for character. Clothing is a metaphor for character. Every teenager just grimaced, and every, every parent is like, see? Clothing is a metaphor for character, right? When you see somebody in a tuxedo, what do you think, right? Oh, he's probably a, he's probably a good person, <laughs> right? We're, we've been watching the National Treasure movies, and in every one of those movies, Nick Cage at some point rips off some outfit and he's in a tuxedo, and then he can just waltz in everywhere and do whatever he wants, right? Because if you're wearing a tuxedo, it's a metaphor for character. You're clearly a good person, right? We, we love people in Uniform, because we say, well, the, the uniform indicates something. You have upstanding character. Yes, sir. No, sir. No, ma'am. You know, like we we associate this, right? What does armor mean? What is this? Right. So, armor is a job description. Armor is an indication of of what is supposed to be inside of us and what we're doing. So, Christ's righteousness is our armor. Christ's righteousness is also our character. 
That is what Paul is saying here. You put this on. This is you. This is the way you live and what you live for. It's to be in our hearts. It's to be what we pray for and look for and pray to do. God is with us. And the question here is, are we with God? Uh, whenever we talk about justice, I know all of you guys are like, Ugh, I don't want to hear any more about justice. I don't want to hear any more about equality and rights. and I don't want to hear any more about this stuff. And you can hear this and, and hear me saying, you're doing great, you're helping out in church, you're being a good worker, you're being a good spouse and stuff. And now I want you to add to that, now I want you to add to that, do better, try harder. Here's what I want you to try. This is what I think Isaiah would suggest, what Paul would say. Just ask the Lord to help you see injustices in your life. I dare you to pray that. <laughs> Ask the Lord to help you see injustices, help you see it, and give you an inkling about what to do. Most of us, me, I'll speak for me, I hear about injustice, and I just think, well, I can't do anything. And at this point in our culture, I'm just blah, 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 I don't want to hear about any of the, I, yeah, everything's terrible, don't tell me about it. That presumes that there's no injustices that I have access to, that there's no, no injustices that I can do anything about, that God has just put me here uselessly. So just pray, Lord, help me to see where there's injustice in my life and give me a sense of what I could do. Would you like to? Would you like to do something? I would, I think. We'll see. Let's pray this together. This is something that matters to God, right? What Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What Paul says, we're, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And he prays in Philippians 1 that your love may abound more and more, that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Back in Isaiah chapter 60. What, what Isaiah is saying in chapter 59 is that everything depends on Jesus. And then we get to Isaiah 60 and he says, Jesus changes everything. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of God is on you. Jesus changes everything. And what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 is this. At one time, Christian, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come. When God called you to Jesus, when God called you to Jesus, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And when God called us together and made us a church here, he said, let there be light there. And there was light. In Genesis 1, when God says, let there be light, it says that, the, and there was light. But in Isaiah 58 and 59, it's more of a question. Let there be light? Will there be light? And it answers and says, there will be because of Jesus. As we point our lives to him, and as we open our lives up to him. So let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we want to be Your people. We want to be Jesus' people. We want to be light in the Lord. We want to be what You have called us to be, what You have made us to be. And so we ask, Lord, that You would, you would work in our hearts, that we might not be so closed off to these questions of justice, that we would not be willing to replace loving our neighbor with uh, things that don't require us to change. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work that you are doing and that you would use this word, Isaiah 58, 59, and 60 today to do it more in us. That we each and that this church might be a place where your light shines. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.